Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview first-time biographer and University of Wisconsin-at-Madison history professor Ashley Brown. Her book, Serving Herself, The Life and Times of Althea Gibson, was published by Oxford University Press in February of this year. Gibson was the first African-American to play and win back-to-back singles tennis championship titles at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. Gibson wrote two autobiographies, and there are at least two other biographies of Gibson, a PBS documentary, and many, many articles about her. So I asked Ashley Brown why she decided to jump into this richly documented Gibson pool to write Serving Herself. Well, thank you for having me, Sonia. Uh, The book is, in fact, the first comprehensive and full-scale biography of Althea Gibson, and I'm certainly appreciative of the work that the previous journalists who've written about Althea Gibson, that they have contributed. Those books were published very nearly 20 years ago. And so I I take the view of the scholar Carolyn Heilbrun that maybe every generation, there should be a new look, a new book about important figures in history. And Althea Gibson definitely ranks among the top most important in the, the history of American sports. Absolutely. I wanted to write this book because I didn't think that previous works really grappled with uh, what was happening during her time in American history, in sports, thinking about civil rights later on, the women's rights movement, changes in sports that impacted the decisions that she made and what she could do, what she said and what she could or couldn't say. Mm -hmm. I also wanted there to be a serious treatment of matters related to gender and sexuality for Gibson. So thinking about changing mores, changing perceptions of American women, of African-American women during her lifetime, and uh, the ways in which she had to contend with those. And finally, the ways in which she differed so dramatically from expectations of African-American women during her lifetime. So for anyone who doesn't know, what were her years? Gibson was born in August of 1927. She was born in South Carolina, and she died in September of 2003 in New Jersey. South Carolina, your home state. It is indeed. So is that what helped to draw you to Gibson? Well, I wouldn't say that. I'll tell you my origin story where Althea Gibson is concerned. My family regularly made trips to the local public library in our town. And I remember being a child, I don't think I was beyond the third grade, and we made one of these visits, and someone had misplaced a couple of these little biographies of two athletes. One was Althea Gibson, the other was Babe Didrikson Zaharias. And the Gibson book, I'm pretty sure I read that one first, it had a bright pink cover, and I've never forgotten that bright pink cover. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in the magazine section beside my mother and just devouring these books. And I got the basics of Gibson's life, that she was a trailblazer. She was the first African-American to compete at what's now the U.S. Open, the first Black American to compete at 
Wimbledon and that she was the first to win those titles. And she also won what is now the French Open in 1956. Yes. And, you know, it seemed to me that based upon those basics, I was set for a lifetime of Black History Month trivia. (laughs) (laughs) And then within a few years, the Williams sisters came on the scene. And I think it's fair to think about Venus and Serena Williams as trailblazers in their own right. And uh, in the late 90s, the early 2000s, both of them, in particular Venus, because she had an important telephone conversation with Gibson, but both of them made a point of recognizing that Althea Gibson came before them. And they brought her life and her story to people who might have forgotten Gibson or maybe they didn't know about her. Mm. I remember when Gibson died in 2003. And then just a few years after that, I was preparing to go to graduate school. And around this time, I had also taken up golf and really fallen hard for it. And I decided that I wanted to learn more about the history of African-Americans in the game of golf. Much of what I saw really pertained to caddies. And of course, then behind that, you would see some things about African-American men who had succeeded on the PGA Tour. I found a book by Pete McDaniel that was about the history of golf, and he had a chapter that was devoted to African-American women in the game. And lo and behold, Althea Gibson was there. There she was. (laughs) There she was, the first Black woman to compete on the LPGA Tour. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this woman integrated, broke the color barrier in tennis. And then she went on about a decade later and did that in golf. What kind of person would do that? And what must she have gone through? Right. This book, it's the culmination of a little more than a decade of work to to answer those questions. Excellent. And, you know, your book details some of the hardships that Gibson endured during her childhood. Could you talk a little bit about those hardships and how they affected her approach to tennis and to sports in general? So Gibson was born to sharecroppers in South Carolina. And they were not a wealthy family by any stretch of the imagination. And then the Great Depression hit in the fall of 1929. Her father always took credit for being the leader, the patriarch of the family. And so he generally positioned uh, himself as being the one within the couple of making this decision to leave South Carolina. So by the early 1930s, they were in Harlem. Ibsen was the oldest of five. And... Her father worked in a garage. He boasted that when he arrived in Harlem, he made $10 every week. Uh, He's quoted in her autobiography as thinking that he had big money. He had it made. He had it made, and he felt that uh, he had already made it, so to speak, in, in reaching New York with these aspirations of opportunities there that were not available to him in South Carolina. But it turned out to be rough going. And there was a period in the middle 1930s when Gibson didn't live with her family. The family was growing. They sent her to Philadelphia to live with an aunt. And so the family doesn't seem to have been all together under one roof until the late 1930s, the very early 1940s. Right. At the same time, I think we can also feel the hardship of not having the whole family together. And uh, she came to tennis under unique circumstances. She always loved sports and games, and she played uh, what was called paddle tennis on the streets of Harlem, uh, part of the Police Athletic League. What is paddle tennis? Oh, great question. So paddle tennis is 
I think of it as a, a miniature version of what we think of as just regular tennis, played on a smaller court, played with wooden paddles instead of with the full-size rackets that we think of today and with a rubber ball. Sounds similar to the pickleball of today. That's it. I'm talking about paddle tennis in the 30s and 40s, and now here we are in the 2020s, and people are just going mad over pickleball. Right. So this pal supervisor saw Gibson play and saw that she was a terrific young athlete, and she had skills when it came to paddle tennis, and he introduced her to regular tennis, and this led to a tryout to join what Gibson called the Elite Black Tennis Club in Harlem, which was the Cosmopolitan Tennis Club. And, you know, even with white athletes who play tennis, we're talking about a sport that's pretty class conscious. So if you weren't of a certain class, you probably couldn't afford to or weren't invited to play tennis. And many of the African-Americans who played it were quite class conscious, too. And Gibson definitely felt those differences as a young person at the Cosmopolitan. Mm -hmm. The other hardships were the fact that her father beat her. And she writes at length about this in her autobiography. And she effectively ran away, left home, spent some time with the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Wow. This was very, very difficult. And she also dropped out of school around the age of 14. She later told someone, she said, when I was your age, person was in, in her early teens, I was on my own. I had to look out for myself. And I think she carried that mentality of having to protect herself, that she had to look out for herself. She certainly brought that into her tennis career and the seriousness with which she played. But I think she carried it just throughout her life with this sense of people could be nice to her and kind to her. But when push came to shove, Althea Gibson had to protect and look out for herself. All right. And you write about Gibson's quote-unquote queerness, not referring to her sexual orientation, but to the fact that throughout her life, she disregarded many of the social norms and conventions that women were supposed to adhere to. So do you think that that attitude was the result of her childhood background? I think so. I think early on, she had a sense that doing the things that women and girls were quote-unquote supposed to do those things weren't necessarily going to help her in the tough life that she had to lead. So in the simplest forms, think about her as a young person wearing shorts and pants on the streets of Harlem. And uh, she definitely preferred to wear shorts when she played tennis. This isn't to say that she never wore a tennis skirt. That's not true. But she was all about winning and competing and making sure that uh, she got the, the better end of the stick. And if that meant wearing the shorts and the pants to do it, then that's what she did. But it also meant that she looked beyond ideas that she had to look a certain way. And ultimately, when she becomes more closely aligned with members of the African-American middle class and the Black elite, you know, they teach her their standards in terms of dress and uh, hairstyles and that sort of thing, and, and she adopts them. But she definitely had her mind on what she wanted to do. It's only later in life when she's in her late 30s that she marries. Gibson was very much focused on her career and supporting herself. And related to that, she had aspirations to support her parents and her siblings, too. Now, why do you think she settled on tennis? Because as a child, she played all kinds of sports and she loved it. But how did tennis become her dominant sport? Tennis was pretty much all there was. Uh, there was the Women's Basketball League briefly in the late 70s, early 1980s, but that didn't last very long. 
Black women were not welcome to join in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. That lasted for a decade. Right. So tennis was the most established, the most organized of the opportunities for women in sports. And one of the downsides of this, though, was the fact that it was amateur tennis. So this meant that one played for honor. They played for cups, Gibson would say, and even lament later on, but they weren't playing for money. Right. And despite the racial segregation and discrimination in America during the 30s and 40s, Gibson and her mentors believed that she had the talent and the potential to become the first Black person to compete in the marquee tennis tournaments of Forest Hills in New York and Wimbledon in England and beyond. So what made her stand out as a young player? So in 1946, Dr. Hubert Eaton and Dr. Robert Walter Johnson, they were from Wilmington, North Carolina and Lynchburg, Virginia, respectively. They saw her compete. She was just about 19 and she was playing in the American Tennis Association's national championship. The ATA was the black counterpart to the United States Lawn Tennis Association. And Gibson had made it to the finals. She lost, but Dr. Eaton and Dr. Johnson thought that she showed tremendous potential. They liked her powers of concentration. They liked the force of her strokes. And they thought that there was just enough there that changes that she needed to make to be a champion. They thought that they could help her get there. They also liked that what they were doing might be helpful to her personally, because they came to learn that she had, in fact, dropped out of school, that she didn't have a high school degree. So what they were doing was helping her with her tennis. They were helping her in terms of trying, they thought, to put her on a path to a better life than she had at that point in Harlem, where she was just living, you know, with one friend after another, working sort of odd jobs. And they thought that perhaps through helping her, they could do something to help African-Americans in terms of the integration of sports and, and changing the course of history for African-Americans in tennis. And speaking of integrating the sport, you know, she was often referred to as the Jackie Robinson of tennis, which she absolutely hated. She did not like um, having that moniker placed on her. And she also didn't often speak out against uh, the racism or the discrimination that she faced in the tennis world and beyond. So why do you think she took that position? Gibson respected Jackie Robinson, and she always acknowledged that she probably would not have had the opportunities that she had in tennis if he hadn't come through first in baseball. And she was deeply mindful that there's a three-year gap from the time he made his debut with the Dodgers in 47 to the time when the folks at the USLTA invited her to play at Forest Hills, making her the first Black competitor there. This was in 1950. But she was also aware that there were a few differences between them. Um, Perhaps primary on that list was the fact that Robinson always saw what he did in sports, what he did in baseball, as being an important stepping stone for African Americans, not only in sports, but in other endeavors. Gibson was much more self-focused. And we can link this to one of the many reasons that I called the book Serving Herself. Gibson, when it came to her tennis career, she wasn't focused on playing to prove something about African-Americans. She was out there competing to prove something about herself. And if, in fact, 
people looked at her success in tennis and they deduced ideas that this meant that African-Americans could succeed in tennis, but also in other realms, then that was great. But that was not her foremost concern. Mm. And she was also aware that she was in an individual sport. Right. She didn't have a branch Ricky. She didn't have teammates. She made so many of her journeys alone. Now, she certainly had friends, African-American and white as well. But when push came to shove, when she was out there on those tennis courts, she was out there all by herself. And it, it links back to her early life of having to depend upon her own strength and skills and wits to try to survive. So despite her historic wins at Wimbledon and in the U.S. Open and beyond, and then when she played professional golf, she struggled financially during much of her life. Why was that? Those were tough times for women in sports. And they were certainly tough times for Gibson as a Black woman in sports. So remember I said that she's playing amateur tennis. That was the avenue for women. I should also add that the LPGA, Ladies Professional Golf Association, was founded in 1949-1950. But even the women in professional golf, their purses were much, much smaller than those that were available to the men on the PGA circuit. So she's playing amateur tennis. She's not going to make any money that way. She dances with Lou Hode, the men's champion at Wimbledon, dances the traditional dance at the annual Wimbledon ball. And whenever I look at that picture of those two together, I've got a picture of them in the book, in fact. Um, honestly, my heart sinks because I know that the newspapers would report the next day that Lou Hode had just signed a contract to play professional tennis for $125,000. Now, this is in 1957. That was a lot of money at that point. Exactly. She hadn't signed a contract for anything. Mm. Gibson certainly thought about playing professional tennis, but she needed an offer and no one had made one to her. So she stuck around for the 1958 season, but she also had this dream of becoming a singer. And she cut an album and uh, that didn't last. And you know, what was actually amazing was that she really had a nice voice. You've been rocking out to Althea Gibson Sings? Yes. You can find it on YouTube. Yes, you can. <laughs> and I'm sure that if Gibson had had a really good producer or manager to work with her, she might have even had a viable music career. She wanted that, but it didn't happen. And she felt that the record company used her and took advantage of her. It's interesting that some people have called her an accommodationist and they want to talk about how stoic she was. I think previous works have presented her as you know, just someone who didn't really change with the times. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's more interesting to observe the ways in which she did speak her mind. Uh, so the singing career didn't pan out. She made a film. She's in a film called The Horse Soldiers, which is a Civil War epic directed by the Academy Award winner. John Ford, and uh, her co-stars in that were William Holden and even John Wayne. Wow. And so she has a part in that film because she wanted to be an actress. But these entertainment aspirations just didn't happen. Yeah. And, you know, I really love the way you brought Gibson to life in your book and really painted a, a vivid picture of the way she moved through life. So what kind of primary and secondary sources did you use to help tell her story? 
key archival collection uh, came from North Carolina. These were the papers of Dr. Hubert A. Eaton Sr., who was her mentor there and father figure. So he held on to their correspondence, the letters that they exchanged over the years. Uh, he also was a leading and important member in the American Tennis Association. He also kept uh, material that's related to the history of the American Tennis Association. So that was deeply important. Gibson was a State Department athlete. So in 1955, when the world was aghast over the murder of Emmett Till down in Mississippi, she was one of four tennis players, the only African-American of the four, who made this goodwill tour for the State Department. They left in November of 1955 for a tour of Southeast Asia, and she turned out to be a sensation there. Where are the State Department papers stored? At the National Archives. And I have to give tremendous credit to the, the employees of the National Archives at the branch there in College Park, Maryland, because they did some excellent work. Uh, and also, I have to tip my hat to the people who work at presidential libraries and museums because I found some good and useful documents that way as well. Did Gibson leave papers herself? You can find her voice again in the Eaton collection. Um, also, her cousin, Don Felder. I got to know Don during the latter stages of working on the book. And I was aware that Gibson had made speeches in the 60s when she was a public relations representative for the Ward Baking Company. And this is also another important new story about Gibson that hadn't previously been told. She made these speeches and it, they weren't just about trying to get people to buy tip-top bread, but she talked about and encouraged young people to stay in school to have the best footing for pursuing their dreams. And I found quotes from some of the speeches in a lot of newspaper articles. Uh, and she spent the rest of her life, whenever she had opportunities, you know, encouraging kids to stay in school or people that dropped out of school as she had uh, to encourage them to go back. So Don really came through. He had in his possession copies of speeches that she had made over time. Uh, and those were absolutely vital to telling the story of her life in the, the 60s and the 70s and, and even into the 80s. So how did you organize and prioritize the massive amounts of material that you had to wade through? Organization is the key to everything. In terms of biography, people will say things later in their lives. They will admit to things or tell stories later in their lives that for any number of reasons they didn't tell earlier. So in Gibson's case, she was a public figure from the late 1940s until she fell uh into ill health in the early 1990s. And the challenge was getting it all together and yet still being open to the stories that she would tell later in her life. Let's say it's an interview she's giving in the 1970s. I'm thinking of one example, 1975. She tells a reporter about playing on this basketball team in Harlem. And she tells a story to that reporter that she didn't tell in her autobiography which was there were teams of white women in basketball who would not play her all-Black team. And so I have to make sure I put this in the earlier chapter, chapter one or two, that kind of thing. Um, how to do the organizing? You know, I think about this as all a part of telling the story, of having the narrative, and then of just being 
open to aware of where you need to go back and have the space for telling any new or additional stories that you come across. Yes. I know that I I might have driven my very fine editor, Susan, nuts. I had the manuscript together, but then I just kept having all of these other ideas or I would come across new materials. So I gave her the manuscript and then I had a Word document that was nearly 20 more pages, single spaced. (laughs) (laughs) And so that is why when people pick up the book, they will feel it in their biceps. That's why it is thick and as heavy as it is, because I still had all of those other things that I wanted to say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So how did you balance writing about her sports successes and failures and avoid presenting them as a simple recitation of one match after another after another? Well, I take that as a compliment. It sounds like you feel like I did something well there. So I appreciate that, Sonia. Thank you. Maybe this is where my Southern ancestry (laughs) comes into play as an asset. Some of the best advice I received a few years ago was to make sure Gibson was on every page. So I kept in mind making sure Gibson was on every page. And I was just always compelled by Gibson as a character. I thought she was a character who was worth following and spending time with. And I wanted readers to feel as if they were on a journey with her, because I know that every day of my life in terms of working on this book, I felt like I've been on a journey with her. So I wanted them to be able to see her life on the tennis court and then later on the golf course, but then also to see her life and her struggles away from those arenas too. Okay. So do you have any recommendations for writers who are planning to or maybe in the middle of writing a biography about a famous person? I think find someone that you'd want to spend so much time with. You are more likely to stick with something, anything, if you really love it. And remember, there are all kinds of things to love about a person or a project, all kinds of things that can keep you coming back to go out to make the research trips, to do the interviews, even honestly, to wake up and sit behind your desk or in your chair, wherever it is that you work. So just make sure that you find someone that you can really be committed to. Did you approach either one of the Williams sisters to ask them how Gibson's life and accomplishments may have inspired or influenced them? I didn't approach the Williams sisters. I have enormous respect for them. And it's just astonishing all that they have accomplished and indeed uh, the number of people that they have inspired. Um, But I am very pleased with the way the book ends. This is a telegram that Althea Gibson sent to Venus Williams in the year 2000, when Venus won Wimbledon. Gibson wrote, You have now moved yourself to another level in your athletic adventure. You are now in the history books forever. I gladly pass the torch to you and Serena. I know that you two will carry it well because you and your sister have been prepared for this day by your parents. Congratulations on your magnificent victory. What a wonderful sentiment. And thank you for your wonderful book, Ashley. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. That was history professor and author Ashley Brown speaking with me about her book, Serving Herself, 
The Life and Times of Althea Gibson, published by Oxford University Press in February of this year. This interview was recorded via Zoom on March 3rd. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.